He is a retired federal ICE agent. He and his partner were ambushed and shot in Mexico. His partner was killed in the line of duty. He barely survived with lifelong injuries. He's here to tell his shocking story about the assault and even more shocking, the treatment by the government afterwards. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T Radio Show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T Radio Show Podcast. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Calling us from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we have Victor Avila on the phone. Victor is a retired federal agent from the ICE, or Immigration's Customs Enforcement, and he's also author of the book, Agent Under Fire. Victor, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me, John Jay. I appreciate it. And it is uh, an honor to have you here. And by the way, before I forget, thank you for your service. It's very much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You've got a rough story to talk about, and, and there's really no way of sugarcoating this. Uh, periodically on this show, we have law enforcement officers that are here to talk about really horrendous things they've been through. Others to talk about what it's like to investigate crimes. And then we have military men and women, victims of crime, other law enforcement officers, first responders, or family members, survivors, talking about traumatic incidents they went through and how it impacted their lives and what they did to build their new lives afterwards. Yours covers kind of the investigation aspect and also the traumatic event aspect as well. That's that's correct. Uh, you know, uh, part of the uh, the identity that I lost after the shooting is, is just that, that in fact I was a, uh, a special agent, a criminal investigator, and and was successful at it in in trying to defend our homeland. But yes, I, I did go through a traumatic uh, shooting uh, where we lost uh, my partner, Special Agent Jaime Zapata, in the line of duty, and I could talk more about that in detail. Yeah, you. let's go and just get into it, because really, like I said, there's no way to sugarcoat this. You and you, your partner were special agents for the federal government, and you were being sent down, I believe it was to Mexico? Yes, I was actually, I was assigned there permanently uh, as a U.S. diplomat, uh, as an ICE agent to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. I had been there close to two years when Special Agent Jaime Zapata had uh, just arrived in the country on a temporary duty status just about a week before the shooting. This was ha- this was in February of 2011. And we were sent on a basically a botched assignment to from Mexico City to travel up north uh, to meet our ICE counterparts from the Monterey uh, ICE office to pick up some equipment from them. And the reason why I say botched is because we knew the intelligence 
about other other insecurity, on, especially on Highway 57, which is the main corridor that runs uh, this highway, that, which was I was very familiar with. I, I I drove on this highway many many other times, escorting other agents out of the country, and that was our main uh, focus and, and main travel route to get out of the uh, of, of uh, Mexico into Texas. And uh, we knew that uh, the Zeta cartel controlled the portions of that of that highway. And there was a lot of intelligence. As a matter of fact, the ambassador to the regional security office had issued an alert just weeks before prohibiting any U.S. personnel from driving on that highway for either uh, business re- reasons or personal reasons. And uh, unfortunately, my uh, superiors there in my office ignored all, all those uh, alerts and sent us on this assignment anyway. Far be it for any type of command staff to make blunders according to them they are faultless it's always the agents or the officers on the street that make the errors it's never from on high and yes i'm being sarcastic but they sent you on this highway anyway knowing full well all the intelligence reports that there was potential high potential for violence yes and uh, and i still brought it up because uh, when i was uh, i was informed of the assignment a few hours before which was very highly unusual usually we would go through an operational plan. We would go through a lot of planning, have backup, either other U.S. agents follow us in other armored vehicles or have the Mexican federal police or Mexican military or escort us. And none of that was afforded to, to me and Agent Zapata. It was hurry up and go, go tomorrow, get that equipment and bring it back uh, as soon as you can. And I challenged all those aspects of it because I hadn't, hadn't been briefed. Apparently, they had been dealing with this and talking about it for several months, something that I wasn't preview to. And even though I brought up all the uh, the issues, they still ignored them. So it wasn't it wasn't something that they weren't aware uh, aware about. And especially our counterparts from Monterey said, "Yeah, there's been a lot of firefights between the Zeta cartel and the military and the police and other cartels. It's a very it's a hot zone, and and we knew it. But you know, after I challenged it, when you're ordered in the government, you're Either you go or you're insubordinate and had no choice at that point. So so we headed off the following morning on February 15th, 2011. We'll get back to that part of the conversation a little bit. I want to fast forward. You're, you're driving into the lion's den, for lack of better words, and areas where the Zeta cartel had been engaged in lots of violence, lots of firefights with Mexican forces, whether it be law enforcement or military, and you were driving into that. Right, right into it. <laughs> Um, and, and we did, and we did. We, we were able to, to uh, make contact with our ICE uh, counterparts, uh, ICE agents, pick up that equipment, which was lo- very large boxes that filled our armored Suburban all the way in the back, including having to lower the second row seats and the third row seats in order to accommodate the large boxes. On our way back, we were able to stop and have lunch. And that's the first time that I gave the keys to Special Agent Jaime Zapata to help me drive the, uh, some of the way back. Uh, this is a total drive of about almost uh, 12 hours or more. And at that point, after he took the, the, the keys, within 15 minutes of him driving, two SUVs full of armed men blocked us in and forced us off the right shoulder of the highway and forced us to a complete stop. And when, once that happened, they, they stopped and surrounded the Suburban. They got out with their AK-47s, uh, long arms, and handguns and surrounded our, our Suburban, demanding 
for us to get out of the suburban and, or to open the doors, which we refused to to do. One of the one of the shooters, one of the main guys that, that the, the the main guy of that hit squad, if you will, opened uh, Special Agent Jaime Zapata's door, which was he was in the driver's seat. Literally opened the door because the suburban was programmed to unlock all four doors when you placed it in park. And he was able to swing the door open, but Agent Zapata immediately shut the door down, shut the, shut the door immediately, and then we were able to lock the doors. But in the while we locked the doors, the lock buttons and the window buttons were next to each other, and we inadvertently lowered my window on my side about two inches, an armored window. We didn't know that had happened. This was a lot of commotion and a lot of screaming going on at this time. Our hands are up closest to the front windshield, uh, as as you can imagine. I'm one yelling in Spanish, telling them that we're Americans, we're uh, U.S. Embassy employees, we're U.S. diplomats, this is a diplomatic vehicle, you are not who we think we are, you're, you're mistaking us for someone else, yelling at us, and all you could see on these guys is evil in their eyes. All they wanted us, and they kept on yelling, is get out, get out, open the door, get out, you're yanking at the door handles. And without notice, two of the shooters, there was about eight of them, by the way. By the way, we're going to take a short break. We are talking with Victor Avila. He is a retired ICE agent, also author of the book, Agent Under Fire. We return to our riveting conversation about what happened to him and his partner in Mexico. This is the Law Enforcement Day Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is... Where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com. Click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today podcast network, Go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with retired ICE agent Victor Avila on the Law Enforcement Today show. Victor, before we went to break, you're talking about you and your partner driving from Mexico City to Monterey and then back on a mission. And there's a lot of faux pas with this we'll talk about later on. But when we left, you guys got hijacked basically on the side of the road by two vehicles and you're in an armor armor protected, I hate to use the word bulletproof because they're really not, but a, a bullet resistant big vehicle. And one of your windows was inadvertently rolled down a bit. People are yelling, screaming. I, can, I can't even begin to imagine the terror, the sound, the chaos that was going on. And you said there's about eight guys all armed with long rifles? That's right. That's right. And uh, they were able to introduce on that window that had lowered down on my side an, an AK-47 and a handgun right by my head. I immediately raised the armored window that caught both barrels of the weapons. And I see them wiggling the firearms and uh, eventually without any notice, they opened fire into the cabin of the suburban striking Jaime Zapata several times on his right side, um, striking me three times, once in the chest, 
and twice in my left leg. We were confined to that front cabin area because, remember, the boxes were all the way to the back of our seats, and so there was no way to jump to the backside of the Suburban. And um, I tell Jaime, go, go, go. Uh, he almost immediately, he got hit. What ended up being a, the fatal wound with an AK-47 on his left leg. And uh, I was able to put the, the Suburban in gear, slammed his leg on the gas, and we crashed the first SUV that was blocking us, trying to get out of the X and get the, the our Suburban back on Highway 57 to escape. But really, the, the Suburban just basically just rolled into the median and stayed there. They destroyed it at that point. They, uh, I was able to raise the complete window after that, and they sprayed over 100 rounds of uh, shooting at it from all the on right side. And you, and you mentioned bullet resistant, and, and that's a great point because a lot of those rounds came in through the back and were stuck in those boxes of equipment all the way to the back of our seats that never got to us. Um, and eventually the, I see one of the SUVs leave. I have very limited visibility on my side because the, the windows, these armored windows turn to kind of snow on the inside and, and you can't see out, out. I was looking through the crevices. I see the, the second SUV leave, but it does a U-turn, comes back, parks in front of the SUV, two, two shooters come out. They stare at me. They, they stand in front of the hood of the, our, our, our suburban. They stare at me, and they, I stare at them, and they open fire into the front of the windshield with their AK-47s, trying to penetrate the armored glass, the bulletproof glass, and uh, shooting tremendous amounts of rounds. And, you know, I just froze her at that point. They run back into the SUV and leave. At that point, um, I still hadn't really realized where I had been shot until I make a phone call to the U.S. Embassy. And people can find this phone call. It's recorded, and it's online. And they can also see pictures of the suburban of how it ended up. They just Google my name. Uh, embassy answered. I was transferred to, to the regional security office where the diplomatic security special agents got on, on the line. And then eventually my, my coworkers from the ICE office got online and was, as you can imagine, trying to tell them where I was. We were in, stranded in the middle of Highway 57, and I didn't know exactly where we were at, the kilometer marker. Uh, I was able to then call the only Mexican federal official that I trusted at that point, which is the head of our vetted unit, he was able to dispatch a helicopter for Mexico City. And it took about 40 minutes, which is a long, long time to be on that highway until the cavalry showed up. You Mexican were there federal police and army. with your partner basically deceased and you were bleeding out for 40 minutes. Yes. Uh, oh I tried to attend to him and his wound. I tried to, you know, as much as I could. I remember shaking him, trying to keep him awake. Um, and then it was my friend on the, on the line telling me, you have to check your physically check yourself because I had a lot of hymas blood on me and I had a lot of, a lot of blood on mine and, uh, of mine on myself. And I had a lot of uh, shrapnel and glass that had cut my face. And so I physically took my hand and found my wound on my chest and then I saw my leg. And so here I was, I took my belt off and, and did a tourniquet off of it with my belt to save my leg. And it was just, um, you know, chaotic on the phone with the helicopter pilot. It, it was chaotic until they finally showed up and uh, took us, flew us to the local hospital there in the, the state of San Luis Potosí. And that's when the real fear, which is people don't believe me when they say, 
you know, were you afraid during the shooting? And I actually didn't have time to be afraid. Right. When, no, when I, we were I going get that because you, your adrenaline is going nonstop, so you don't have time to really think and process stuff. But, man, afterwards, oh, my gosh. The afterwards is when the, the I was petrified to go to the hospital because I've worked the cases where the cartels go to the hospital and finish people off. And the Zeta cartel are known for not leaving any survivors, and I was just afraid that they were just going to kill me at the hospital. They took uh, Agent Zapata to one trauma room. They took me to another. I refused any medication. I refused an IV. I thought they were going to poison me and kill me here. And eventually, the, about an hour later, the reinforcements of the trusted Mexican officials that I had called surrounded. This is like the SWAT-type team of the federal police surrounded the hospital and made it secure. And that was the first a bit of sigh of relief until the first American showed up about four hours later. Brother, I gotta tell you, I've been through a lot of stuff in my law enforcement career, but nothing compares to this. The top of my head, the first thing that came to my mind, it, you know, it's horrifying when you explain afterwards what happened. When it's going through it, we talked about earlier, you don't have time to really process things and time distorts, everything goes kind of haywire, you see things differently, you hear things differently. But when those two guns got shoved in the window and started firing inside of a closed cabin of a vehicle, it had to be deafening. Deafening. It was deafening. I actually have a lot uh, hear, hearing loss in my left ear because of it. Um, I grabbed, I forgot to tell you this, I grabbed the handgun and wiggle, wiggled the handgun trying to remove it, burned the heck out of my left hand. And believe, when I got to the hospital, that's what actually hurt the most because my skin has, was peeled off. And, and that was, was just stinging me. And, uh, uh, it, it was, it was just, uh, it was survival mode is the best way I could tell you is trying to do everything I can to save Jaime and myself from that situation. And again, there's no way to fancy this up and make it nice. Jaime didn't survive. He was killed. He was, uh, the doctor then eventually came out and, and told me that my partner had, uh, had passed, and I told him to please, uh, we are U.S. Americans in a foreign country, and let me tell you, as a Hispanic of Mexican descent, I felt like such a foreigner. For all intents and purposes, I, I felt like I was in China. It, it felt like I didn't, I wasn't from there. I'm an American. And it, it was a fair, very ugly, lonely feeling being there, and I asked the doctor, please treat my partner with dignity and respect. Uh, because uh, now they realize they had an international incident in their hands. Uh, once uh, the building was secure, I was able to identify myself proudly that I was an American, that I was a U.S. federal agent. And um, you could see the hospital staff kind of do the, oh, okay, I see what we got here. But uh, kudos to them. They did, did uh, outstanding medical uh, attention to me. And thank and goodness the for them. We, we're talking with Victor Avila, a retired ICE agent, also author of the book Agent Under Fire. And he's talking about the incident in Mexico where he and his partner were shot multiple times. His partner was killed. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Back to our conversation with Victor Avila on the Law Enforcement Today show. Victor is a retired ICE agent. He was shot multiple times. His partner was also shot in Mexico. And his partner was killed in the line of duty. And he's written a book called Agent Under Fire. 
when we went to break, you're talking about, Victor, when you're in the hospital and finally you're able to tell them you're a U.S. federal agent and you had some people there to help take care of you that you felt more comfortable with. I, I number one, cannot imagine what you went through when you were hurt and, and Jaime was killed. I can't even fathom that. Secondly, the, the fear that must have been going through you being in a hospital. And you said, I think you used the terms, I felt like a total stranger in that hospital as if you didn't belong anywhere. You weren't in America. You're not Mexican, even though you're Mexican descent, you're an American citizen and you're a federal agent. And you felt a lot of hostility. That I sure did, especially knowing the, the corruption in Mexico and uh, and all, all of that just culminated at that time. And it wasn't until the, the U.S. agents and the, the U.S. embassy doctor showed up that took over the care that I felt a lot more comfortable. They secured the building. Eventually, they wanted me out, me and Jaime out, and they got me out at 3 in the morning. DEA was uh, gracious enough to let us borrow their airplane to get me out. They flew me out in the middle of the night to Houston, where they continued the, the, my treatment there. They then sent over for my family because there was already intelligence that they knew where I lived in Mexico City. And so they got my wife and kids secured, took them to a, a hotel to secure them, waiting for them to be shipped out and, and extracted from Mexico for their safety. So they went through their own ordeal, which, as you can imagine, my kids were, at that time, they were 6 and 10. And so um, they went through their own trauma. About two days later from Houston and uh, from Mexico City, we were reunited in El Paso with my family. Um, and then the, the second nightmare of it, over, uh, which is what I call it, the aftermath of the shooting, it was really begins because, unfortunately, my agency was just not prepared did not know what to do with me. They were, I, I, my family and I got the short end of the stick for whatever reason. One is possibly because two of the weapons that were used against us were part of Operation Fast and Furious. And if people don't know what this is, it is an operation under the Obama administration and uh, Attorney General Eric Holder that allowed weapons from the U.S. to be walked or uh, be allowed to go into Mexico without any further uh, development or taking anybody down. And so there's thousands of weapons that made it into Mexico under the, the ATF supervision. Two of those weapons were used to attack us and kill Special Agent Jaime Zapata, along with Agent Brian Terry two months before the Border Patrol agent that was killed in Arizona. So maybe because of that, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, bad issues that we ended up in Washington, D.C. because they didn't want us nowhere near the U.S.-Mexico border. I did my physical rehabilitation in, in Washington. We had to find a place for my kids to go to school. I, not we, my family, my, my wife and I, with, with no one's help, had to find a place to live, had to find a, how to re-enroll our kids into school. So I always tell people this way, you left your house this morning and you're never going to go back. All you had on with you was the clothes on your back. That's it. And all of a sudden you're somewhere else. What do you need? Well, you need a toothbrush. You need my kids needed school supplies. We needed jackets. It was 72 degrees in Mexico City. It was snowing in Washington, D.C. And we needed clothing. We needed an apartment. We needed a pantry. We needed, you know, everyday living uh, stuff to, to just continue our life. Plus, I was in a wheelchair. I was going to say that. This is on top of 
trying to rehab from horrible injuries. Going through that alone, I hate moving. Let me tell you, brother, I despise moving. It's one of the most distressful things in my life. Having to pick up my family and my kids and move to another city and have no one help you and you're in a wheelchair recovering from being shot multiple times and your partner was killed and no one helped you is unforgivable. No one, uh, my agency, to this day, as I speak to you, uh, many, many expenses of thousands and thousands of dollars have never been reimbursed. Uh, eventually, uh, we found a place, we were able to, I was able to do my rehab uh, in Washington, D.C., and then uh, all I wanted, I still had that mentality, I just wanted to go back to work. I, I sought out an assignment in in Spain. They issued me uh, to be a assistant attache at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. They gave me that. My family and I just wanted to leave. We left thinking we were going to be out there for three years, let it all calm down. But 19 months later, they said, you got to get out. Leave you gotta leave Spain and go find a place to live in the U in the U.S. Well, you know they wouldn't tell me where I could or could not go. I was still concerned about my safety. Long story short, here we ended up in Denver, Colorado. But I wasn't going to the office. They didn't want me in the office. They took my gun. They took my car. They erased my U.S. law enforcement call sign. As people know, an agent and police officers have a an official call sign, a number. They erased that. They erased my email. And so I have, I'm a, an active employee without any access whatsoever sitting in my living room in Washington, in, in Denver, Colorado, and still suffering from PTSD, suffering from a lot of issues, still physical issues. I, I had, I ended up getting shoulder surgery. Uh, I had a procedure yesterday on my back, John Jay. I still have issues in my hip and my lower back from my leg, but all that was still going on, and, you know, it was very hard to deal with that. And so the only remedy that I had was to seek a retirement. They denied an early retirement. I had close to 20 years of service. And so the only thing I could go was a medical retirement. And so in 2015, I was granted that with the help of a congressman. Uh, and so I separated from service back then. Well, first off, I got to say this. I'm thankful for the people that made the body armor for the vehicle you're in. Not body armor, the, the bullet-resistant glass for the armor vehicle you're in. I'm thankful for the medical staff that took care of you. And I'm thankful for you surviving to tell your story. And I feel horrible for what you went through, what Jaime went through. And I really feel horrible for what your family's gone through because... That's an unspoken part of the equation that a lot of people don't hear about. They love to pass judgments about law enforcement, and they never consider the impact of these horrific events on their family members. So please, before I forget, wish your spouse and your children the best for me and tell them I said thank you as well. What was the extent of your injuries? So um, I had a, 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 an open uh, chest wound from the, the, the gunshot. And then the, my legs, uh, one on the top uh, and one in the bottom shin area. The one on the top, they, re, they never removed the bullet. It's still there. I, I talked to you today because it was too intrusive to go in there and dig it out and cause too much damage. So they just left it there. It's encapsulated. Once a year, I get an x-ray to make sure it hasn't moved. But I suffer from chronic lower back pain and issues with my left leg. I walk fine. I'm mobile. I'm thank, I thank God every day that I am. But I do continue to get treatments. Yesterday, I got a uh, what they call an RFA a, a, a treatment on my lower back, 
and I, I continue to have those. I suffer from hyperhidrosis. Uh, my sleeping pattern is a lot better than it was years ago. And so everything has progressed, and I'm in a very good place now. But it was because of a lot of uh, counseling, of a lot of treatment, and, and most importantly, the support of my wife and my family and my kids. It was, it was a horrible and very dark days after the shooting for several years that a lot of people don't understand. People ask me which one was worse, the shooting or the aftermath, and I really have to think about it because the aftermath continued on for years while the shooting was a moment that happened. And to some and, respects, it's still going on today. We're, we returned our conversation with Victor Avila, who is a retired federal agent for ICE, also author book, Agent Under Fire. We're going to talk about his rehabilitation, what it took to get to where he's at today, and the outcome, and of course, what inspired him to write the book. Catch all the episodes of Law Enforcement Today show as a podcast for free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast, or just go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and you'll find us right there. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. There's a huge amount of interest in true crime story podcasts. So we started a new one called True Crime Fighters Podcast. Very few of the true crime podcasts tell the stories of the heroes that fight horrific crime. Whether it be law enforcement officers or everyday citizens, we tell their stories on the True Crime Fighters Podcast. Each episode, no longer than 15 minutes. Do a Google search for True Crime Fighters Podcast. Subscribe today for free. Or be sure to check us out on Facebook. Do a search for True Crime Fighters Podcast. conversation with Victor Avila, retired ICE agent. He was shot multiple times in an ambush attack in Mexico. His partner, Jaime Zapata, was killed in line of duty. And before we end the break, Victor, we're talking about your recovery and the extensive injuries you had. And I got to say this, from what you said, I find it absolutely atrocious the way you're treated. When law enforcement officers are suspected of corruption or doing something wrong, contrary to what people believe. It's not business as usual. They're pretty much cut off. So all the things you talked about, your unit number, the email address, your gun, your identity, all that stripped from you, and you're basically sitting at home waiting in limbo. That's as if you were treated like you were a criminal instead of a hero. That's absolutely how I felt. I, you know, you start doubting yourself, like, what did I do? What did I, all I did was serve my country. All I did was work. And, and and I got shot in the line of duty, and that's what happened. And so you start doubting yourself, identity crisis for sure. And so now I talk about an officer wellness. I understand what it's like. I, I, I'm a big advocate for officer wellness. We, we have a record number of officer, police officer suicides in our country now because it's harder than ever to be a law enforcement officer in this country. And so uh, I really like to share that part of the story, and I thank you for letting me talk about this because this is a part that I really don't talk about a lot. Right, and, and a lot of people uh, don't understand it's so it. important to, to support them. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand it, Victor. And I'm, you know, I don't talk about a lot of what I went through because number one, I don't want to hear the stupid questions. And people, I don't blame them. They, they don't understand they'll ask questions. And I get agitated, so I don't talk about it. But what people see today, the, the guy they see right now is not the same guy 30 years ago it took a lot of work to get to where i'm at today and i'll be honest with you it's not difficult work now but it takes a lot of work to stay where i'm at today it, it, this is a process and i'm sure for you it's and you and your and your family 
your, your spouse, your kids. It's been a huge process for them as well. You talk, I use the word uh, resiliency. Oh my goodness. Uh, I, I thank God every day for the resiliency and, and my kids. And, uh, you know, I have a, 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 my daughter's already graduated college. I have a 16 year old son. They, they have done great. My wife, uh, I can't give them in the, in the book, it'll come across and you'll, you'll read it. People tell me, man, you really talk about your family and your wife. I tell them because they're, they're a part of me. They, they put up with me not only after the shooting, but before as a law enforcement officer working odd hours, uh, you know, missing birthdays, missing all these important uh, activities that because I was at work and, and I neglected my family a lot because of my career. And so I, I, I talk about that as well in the book. The second part of the book is about all about border security. And I wanted to remind people that, by the way, yes, I was shot, but this is what I used to do. I'm a, I'm a subject matter expert in human trafficking. I rescued countless women and children from captivity from sexual exploitation, from forced labor uh, uh, situations, uh, drug trafficking, human smuggling, everything that you're seeing at the border right now, the crisis that we have. Now I, uh, I am an advocate and a voice for those officers down there that they can't speak right now because of this current administration. And, and I, I inform people of what's going down at the border. I went down to the valley of the southern border of Texas, just last week, I was in El Paso, Texas, in the West Texas region, to compare and show people exactly what is going on on our border and how most infect- it's affecting our communities in our country, especially the cartels and the impact they have in every single city. You will see it coming to a town near you, your neighborhood, your schools, your criminal justice system, your healthcare systems will be impacted because of the open border policy that's going on right now. I don't think many Americans really understand it, partly because many people live in the mindset of not in my backyard. If it's not in my backyard, number one, I don't care. Number two, they don't take into consideration how it impacts them. They could be in Ohio, they can be in Vermont, they can be in uh, Oregon, and you're gonna be impacted by this sort of thing. And then, of course, they're guided by what they hear on the news media. And the news media really has a very biased slant about how they present stories. I'm not getting into partisan politics. I'm just saying, particularly with law enforcement, I'll give you an example. If a law enforcement officer has to shoot somebody, the news headline in the newspaper or on television would read something like this or go something like this. Police officer shoots man. And that's it. They don't talk about the 50 things the guy did beforehand, which could have changed the outcome until much later in the story. They just go with the most accusatory, the most in your face, the most negative thing they can to get eyeballs on their story. And it really makes me angry because no one hears about what you and your family went through afterwards. Nobody. Yes. And, and it's, uh, you talk about the bias. And I'll tell you really quick uh, how that bias and how the media selects what cases. Uh, and, and what are these they, they report? We had a case here locally in the DFW area where a black individual uh, broke into a home and uh, uh, took a, a white kid and killed him. But there's no word about it in national media. But can you imagine if it would have been the other way around and it was a white person that took a black kid? It would have been all over. People would have been protesting and, and all these other. And it, it would have been very inflammatory. Yeah, and here's yeah. the thing, and I know you'll agree with me. I don't, I don't never cared about race, I, and I still don't care. And what I care about is let's not treat 
violent criminals with kid gloves. They need to be treated the way that they deserve to be treated, which is harshly. And they should be in prison. And they should be in prison for a long time. And if you've proven yourself to be a career violent criminal, you should never get out. Ever. I agree with you. And I, I don't, I, I, I don't never, care whether I you're... practice my career that way either. I never cared about the race or, right. or I cared about the violation of crime that the person had committed and, 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 and investigate them because of the crime that they violated, not because of the color of the skin or where they right. came from. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's definitely an issue in our country now, but, but that's what I do now. I, uh, I go out there, I'm, I'm available to be hired for speaking engagements to speak to groups and all kinds, all kinds of groups, because I, I talk about the survival part of it. I talk uh, about the logistics and the, the police uh, as well section of it, the, the tactics. I talk to police groups about that. And I also talk about my faith. Uh, I do believe that I, I'm here be, by the grace of God, and, yeah. and, and I shared my faith in it as well. So I'm available for that, and, and um, people could learn more about me on my website at agentunderfirebook.com. They could go there and, uh, and look for me and, and, and sign me up or get in touch with me uh, to, to get me to go speak to their group. Or, of course, order the book through the website as well. What motivated you to write this book? That had to be a difficult thing for you to do. It was, and it was, um, when I wrote the book, um, it, it, it had to put the story down on paper, first of all, to inform people that, in fact, you have had a U.S. federal agent killed in the line of duty outside of the United States, which the last time that happened in Mexico was in 1985 with DEA agent Kiki Camarena when he was kidnapped and tortured and murdered. And that and DEA did a great job of still to this day of, of keeping his memory alive. But my agency uh, has done a very poor job of doing that at Jaime Zapata. My duty and my obligation as a survivor is to keep his memory alive and his sacrifice to our uh, our country that was the main reason why i wrote it i, I wanted I, I go into detail with the shooting there's a lot more that i didn't mention during this interview but i go into detail the book is very personal i tell the reader who i am go into detail about my career and my assignment in mexico of course the shooting and then the second part i offer solutions everything that we're talking about the border the wall sanctuary cities asylum Everything that you're seeing happening today, it's not just repeating the problems, but actual solutions from a person that has been there and done that and investigated a lot of these crimes. Your book is called Agent Under Fire. Did you find it therapeutic when you wrote about what happened in your recovery afterwards? Definitely, definitely therapeutic. Tough, tough at times when you go back. And it's funny when, even though I've been through it, but once you put it pen to paper and you write it and you read it back, it's tough. It's difficult even for my wife, believe it or not, has not been able to read that chapter of the book. And you will go through emotions with my book. You will cry. You will be angry. You will be, it will hopefully call you to a uh, cause for action to do something. And people ask me, what do I do? What can I do? Well, I tell them it's simple. Get involved in your local community. Go to your local city council meeting. Go to your local school board meeting. Go to your county commissioner's meeting. Be involved in your community because all politics eventually are local, and that's where you can make an impact on the decisions that these elected officials make. Look at what's happening around the country in Portland and all these other places. All these decisions of whether they, they hold back the police, or whether they arrest individuals that are rioting, it all comes down to the mayor and the city council people that make right. the decisions. 
And where is it? We're running out of time. What is your website again where people can get the book and more information about you? Agentunderfirebook.com. And you want to order the book directly through Amazon.com or BarnesandNobles.com, you could do that as well. If you visit my website, you'll learn more, a little bit more about me, and you can also look for me to hire me for a speaking engagement. Victor, thanks so much for your service, and really thank you for being a guest on the show. It's all very much appreciated. Thank you for the time today, John Jay. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.